Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Next Issue, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try out Next Issue for free at nextissue.com culture. That's nextissue.com culture. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Cultured Gap Fest Light in August edition. It's Wednesday, August 12, 2015. On today's show, the cult comedy Wet Hot American Summer has reunited its original cast and creative team to make a Netflix TV series. And then The End of the Tour is the new film about the five days the journalist David Lipsky spent interviewing the author David Foster Wallace. We're joined by Jessica Winter to discuss not only the film, but the posthumous cult of DFW. And finally, the climate and gender politics of air conditioning. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. Um, heavy is the hand that controls the thermostat, Julia. Every now and then you want to just put it at 55 just to get people to work a little harder. <laughs> I wish I controlled the thermostat. The heat in our uh, old lofty building and the cooling are utterly mysterious to me. And my office is constantly a temperature other than I would like it to be in varied, unpredictable directions. So, uh... w- Way to hide the whip cracking behind befuddlement, Julia. It's not going to work. <laughs> And uh, Dana Stevens is off this week, so we're joined by Seth Stevenson, longtime Slate contributor. Seth Stevenson, I should say. Seth, welcome back to the show. Hi, Steve. Hi, Julia. Hello. Um, Julia, do we have any business before we... uh... Yeah, we have a few bits of business. First of all, I should talk about our plus segment in homage to our Wet Hot American Summer discussion. Steve, Seth, and I will be talking about our own summer camp experiences, highlights, lowlights, whether our names are still on the wiggy wall. And I also wanted to let our listeners know about a cool event we're doing for Plus members. We're celebrating the sign-up of our 10,000th member, who turns out to be uh, a sheep farmer in Okotoks, Alberta, Canada, who was interviewed delightfully by Mike Pesca on Slate Plus. I'm not sure he will be there, but others will be there to celebrate the glorious five-digitification of the Slate Plus membership. We're going to have celebrations on the night of Wednesday, August 19th in both New York and D.C. And you can find information about how to get tickets to those parties on our show page. Finally, I want to let listeners know that we are fast filling up our stint in Chicago on September 22nd at the Music Box Theater. So please go to slate.com slash culture chai, that's culture C-H-I, to sign up for tickets. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. Wet Hot American Summer was released in 2001. It starred Paul Rudd, Janine Garofalo, David Hyde Pierce, Amy Poehler, Bradley Cooper, Elizabeth Banks, make up a name. They were in it. Nonetheless, on initial release, it fizzled only to become that magic thing, a box office bomb that goes on to a glorious afterlife and home viewing. Wet Hot American Summer has become a camp classic. One might even say a camp, camp classic. Har har. The movie told the story of the last days at Camp Firewood. 
a sleepaway joint in rural Maine. It's now been revived as a Netflix series. It's a prequel that tells the story of the first day of that same summer. Why don't we listen to a clip? Man, when did Katie Finnerty get hot? Yeah, those mosquito bites have turned into juicy tarantula bites. And plus, someone gave her the memo about losing the braces. Yeah, well, send her a new memo. To Katie, from Andy. Re, me being your boyfriend. Hunker down for doinkage. I don't bother. She's dating that douchebag from Camp Tiger Claw across the lake. Doesn't scare me. Check this out. Katie, you gonna be around later? Um, yeah. Cool. So am I. (laughs) That was weird. (laughs) Julia, how... I mean, here we are, we're laughing already. It's incredibly funny. How did I not know about Wet Hot American Summer? You didn't know about Wet Hot American Summer? Oh, I, I really, I really, <laughs> I really didn't. Someone put me on a little skiff and pushed me out into the Atlantic decades ago. <laughs> I just, I, that, that has once again been confirmed as uh, as the, the guiding metaphor of my life uh, with this. But I find Do you ever feel it. like this podcast is like a Truman Show type experiment where you've been isolated from culture and then we just reintroduce <laughs> you to it bit by bit? And you're forced to immediately comment upon it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Um, among the many gloriously obvious jokes that this show makes is that it's a prequel and they're all supposed to be five weeks younger than they were in a movie made 14 years ago. So some people have, you know, their whole body morphia morphology has changed radically in the last 14 years. It's one of the many just weird go with it jokes um, here. First of all, had you watched the original? Had you rewatched it a thousand times and laughed at it? Is it your spinal tap? What do you, what do you make of Wet Hot American Summer, the phenomenon? I'd rate it on a five on that scale, if that scale had numbers. <laughs> I saw it possibly in theaters or if not, rented it shortly after it came out. Thought it was very hilarious. It is full of charm, sparkles, fairy dust and twinkles around it in my head when I think of its name. Never watched it again. Never watched it high, which seems like clearly the point. Never, <laughs> you know, really had the urge to go back and watch it, but thought fondly upon it as a delightfully inspired goofball romp and and one that I think struck me at the time as more of a rare object in the culture than its brand of comedy is now. I'd be curious to hear what you think mm-hmm. about that, Seth, but it it just felt so dada, so goofy, so clearly an enjoyable lark that it felt very fresh, like it felt kind of loose and rangy and delightful and inspired. So that's that's where it falls in my brain. Seth, what about your brain? I also I watched it very early on repeatedly, definitely watched it high, <laughs> very much enjoyed uh, everything that Paul Rudd did. But what you were saying about uh, uh, it, how it fit into the context of the culture, it is that Dadaist absurdist humor is everywhere now. And it's beginning to wear a little thin for me, actually. I mean, I want to say overall, I very much enjoy the wet, hot American summer universe. There are many laughs to be had. But for the purposes of this discussion, I'm going to take the side that I, I didn't love this reboot. It wore thin for me very quickly. It feels like, to me, it's like a Skittles, you know, the Skittles ads that are just completely absurdist. Maybe you don't know those Skittles ads. I do ads. know, because I've edited pieces by you about them. <laughs> There's just every, like, candy commercial now is this 
crazy psychotropic humor. And that's uh, what a lot of this is. Also, a lot of this relies on satire of tropes. You know, there's the overall, like the camp movie trope, Meatballs or Little Darlings, the Tatum O'Neill movie. And then within it, every joke is like satirizing some trope. And that also wears a little thin for me. There's not a lot of effort here to create like a compelling narrative or characters and relationships that we really care about. We want to see, you know, through to their completion. And so if it's just like silly joke after silly joke, I get a little tired of that. I did. I mean, I love that in Arrested Development, but that was more about wordplay and puns. And I and I think maybe that hits my sweet spot a little bit more than this does. I mean, I think it's this really hard needle to thread to take a beloved media property and use the wild resources and wild west of streaming channels or networks or whatever the hell they call themselves, the, the Netflixes and Hulus of the world, you know, the ability to reboot these old properties and to, to reboot ones that aren't the obvious ones, the ones beyond, like, The Karate Kid, is sort of exciting. Like, it seems just surely unlikely that this many actors, comedians, and talents, a good percentage of whom have become, like, megastars since their, you know, Oscar nominations, multi-million dollar movies, etc. Since this project, like the sheer scheduling feat of making this movie happen is kind of a an awe-inspiring thing. But what, like, I don't feel like you're going to get the transcendent joy of encountering a new piece of art or comedy that takes flight and tickles you in a fresh way when you're revisiting this old territory. Right. And also because it bombed, right? Isn't that part of the charm of discovering it later is that, you know, first of all, all these, as you say, as you say, Julia, a lot of these people went on, you know, very many of them went on to huge success critically and otherwise. But this thing went absolutely nowhere and people didn't really quite get it. And now that its style of comedy has become very pervasive and all these people have become famous there's kind of a faked innocence to the original one that turns out to be sort of real, especially in relation to the new one. And the, the layers of self-consciousness maybe have gotten a little too thick and they're turning into self-regard in a way. But let me, I want to talk to Seth a little bit for a second about the style of comedy. I mean, this kind of original installment in this kind of joke to joke to surreal joke, you know, really not hung on the skeletal frame of actual characters or actual plot. It seems to me it goes back in my head to Airplane. How did it, I mean, I just am not up enough on what is out there now and what's what's kind of proliferated over the last decade. Is it 30 Rock? Like, what made this go from a fringe style to a default style? Well, you know, the thing about 30 Rock was that, you know, over the course of those seasons, we actually did uh, develop relationships with those characters and they became sort of real to me. And in these, there's just no effort at that. And a lot of it is they just sort of throw celebrities at you as mm-hmm. the, like, to, those are the characters, if you will, like Elizabeth Banks is the character or John Hamm is the character instead of creating an actual character. I begin to resent a little bit these, like the celebrities just palling around and you feel them like, oh, they all want to be in on this because it's kind of cool to be another celebrity with all these other celebrities. And there doesn't seem like a lot of acting effort that they have to put into this. I was sort of realized this is kind of like the cannonball run of our age. If you remember those early 80s, <laughs> movies where yeah, like sure. Ricardo Montalban and Dean Martin and Don Knotts all show up in celebrity cameos and it's just everyone's having a good time and all these celebrities are hanging out and which famous face will pop up next and that that starts to bother me after a while. Mm. All right. The segment would not be complete if I didn't point out this 
oddity that I discovered, which is that one of the two creators is named Michael Showalter. That last name was familiar to me from Elaine Showalter, the kind of great American feminist literary critic. It turns out she's Michael Showalter's mother. It points up that this is a stupid thing made by supremely smart people. Not every child of an academic is super smart, but in this instance, I think we can safely say he is. But he's in it. He's very funny. Almost everybody in it, Julia, is doing something charming. What what especially, did, whose performance especially did you like? I actually liked a lot of the performances that were new to this production. The Blake at Camp Tiger Claw side plot, which we heard a little bit about in the clip, involves Josh Charles, a perennial favorite of mine, as a sort of v-neck sweatered asshole in the 80s movie Mold, who can't believe that Katie's hanging out at the low class and extremely Jewish camp, and he and his wasp brethren exhibit overdrawn shock dudgeon and waspery with a little assist from Kristen Wiig that that are pretty great. Um, I actually love Zach Orth, who's not a, a household name by any means, but is the somewhat chubby, flowing blonde-haired dude who often interacts <laughs> with Paul Rudd, and I just think yeah. he's he's fantastic. <laughs> he's great. There's a terrific thwarted romance between the Michael Showalter character and Lake Bell, who plays a, I think... This is not a feminist term, but the only word is cocktease <laughs> in, in hilarious and uh, amusing fashion. Um, okay, well, I will remain the master of the not in obvious and say that Paul Rudd just had me fucking dying of of tear loss. I was laughing so hard. He's so funny in this, uh, in the original and in this one. Okay, well, it's Wet Hot American Summer. It was a movie that became a cult classic. Now it's a Netflix reboot TV series. Check it out. Let us know what you think of the original and the, and the facsimile. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? We have a new sponsor this week, Steve. We are sponsored by Next Issue, which is a mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your phone or tablet. So you can read all of the content from magazines like People, Vogue, Esquire, Time, and more without having to go in and out of 16 different apps or widgets or decide whether you're going to read it on their most responsive mobile site or your app or whether the app is free or paid or, you know, like the experience of trying to read things from different interesting publications while you're waiting in line at the coffee shop is not always easy. And Next Issue exists to solve that problem. So sign up for Next Issue now. You'll get immediate access to all the top magazines, including back issues and exclusive videos and photos made very easy to use on your phone. Next Issue is offering a free trial right now when you go to nextissue.com slash culture. Again, you can try Next Issue for free right now when you go to nextissue.com slash culture. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, thanks, Julia. Moving on. The End of the Tour is the new indie movie about uh, the five days that the novelist David Foster Wallace spent with the Rolling Stone journalist David Lipsky. David Foster Wallace is played by Jason Siegel, Lipsky by Jesse Eisenberg, and it's written by Donald Margulies. I don't, I'm not conscious of having ever seen a film written by him. He's the great playwright um, installed at Yale and a fixture of the American theater. Anyway, very sadly, I wasn't able to see the film in time for our recording, so we're joined by Slate editor Jessica Winter to take my place for the segment. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Excellent. I am now going to beg off, but guys, enjoy, and I'll see you soon. All right, well, I will take the hosting baton from Steve and see what I can accomplish with it, and we'll try not to feel too anxious and David Lipsky-ish about it. Um, I think we should lay our David Foster Wallace bona fides on the table here. I believe I am the small fry in the room 
being in the lame journalistic position of being a fan but not completest of the nonfiction work and someone who read a third of Infinite Jest, admired it, but never finished. So <laughs> I will officially take the short straw and remain relatively quiet during the rest of the segment. But you guys are both uh, bigger devotees than me. Seth, what's your relationship to uh, DFW and his work? Uh, I've read... Most, but not all, of his writing. I, in the summer of 1997, while working at Slate, my first job out of college, I would just go home from work every day and read Infinite Jest. And then on weekends, I would just sit in my apartment all day on like Saturday and Sunday to read Infinite Jest. I will also now obnoxiously note that I've written for Slate about the fact that one small thing I wrote in a review of a David Foster Wallace short storybook showed up in David Foster Wallace's notebooks in his archives. And I wrote very proudly and obnoxiously about that for Slate. It was not obnoxious <laughs> at all when you wrote about that for Slate, but that was that was awesome and remarkable. Okay, Jessica, did David Foster Wallace ever write about your writing about him? He did not. And I don't actually think I've written about David Foster Wallace, but I think I'm a near completist like Seth. I think I've read all or most of the fiction and all or most of the nonfiction. Before we get into the film and his posthumous legacy and why it is that whenever we post something on Slate.com about David Foster Wallace, it is immediately flocked to by the citizens of the internet. Can you guys speak a little bit about his work and why you have pursued it to the ends of the earth? <laughs> each each, uh, each contestant here is has given a gracious hand to the other to suggest that they go first, which I think speaks to the fact that talking about the writing of this particular writer is yes. really difficult yes. and that that is, in fact, the project of this movie is a bunch of talking about excellent writing. But before I let you off the hook, you guys have to answer well, the question. So he's, I mean, yeah, it's impossible. So he's got a wide-ranging intellect. He's got a pyrotechnical skill with language. And those two things alone make me just want to read everything he writes and make me want him to write about every topic there is on Earth, be it nonfiction or fiction. I think the experience of reading Infinite Jest for the first time or the second time or the third time is very hard to describe because you feel as though you're encountering the kind of mind uh, with its capacity, with its ability to uh, limb the micro and the macro, with its far-ranging interests. I, I just, I've never encountered a mind like the mind that created Infinite Jest. And if you spend enough time inside that book, you can talk yourself into the idea that this is the only book <laughs> and that this book contains all that there is. I mean, it's a book about entertainment addiction, media addiction, addiction to pleasure, addiction to drugs. It's about family. It's about love. It's about despair. Uh, it's about the future. It's about America uh, and tennis. It's just, it's about <laughs> sports. It, it's just, it's insanity. Encountering that book is just a crazy making experience. And if it is the first thing that you read, and it is the first thing that I read of his, everything else, even if it's disappointing, and you know, why shouldn't everything else in the world be disappointing next to Infinite Jest, is completely fascinating. Because the same mind that wrote that book also wrote about taking a cruise or uh, wrote about uh, clinical depression. He, he has a, a, a story called The Depressed Person uh, that is, is also one of the most amazing things I've, I've ever read because it is a very frustrating story to read. And then halfway through it, you realize that he is actually recreating the experience of being depressed and having to be around a depressed person. And I remember just having this lightning bolt moment uh, on a subway reading The Depressed Person where I, I literally, I was reading it and I stood up in my subway car. <laughs> Like, I could not be sitting down while I read the story. I had to stand up to just sort of take it in and, and be in this moment of reading this book. I, I, I cannot 
adequately even begin to describe what David Foster Wallace means to me and what his writing meant to me. And uh, when he died, I felt like someone I knew had died, which is a weird kind of gross feeling. But I, I, in some kind of way, I mourned him. And so I was uh, really excited to see this movie. So the movie we should stipulate is based on a book that is based on an interview that the writer and journalist David Lipsky conducted with David Foster Wallace at the end of the tour. That's the title of the film. The last five days of his book tour for Infinite Jest, I believe, in 1996. The interviews were conducted and taped. They were supposed to result in a piece for Rolling Stone. That piece never came to pass. Years went by. And then when David Foster Wallace killed himself, Lipsky spoke a bit about him in the aftermath of that. And then eventually turned the interviews into a book and really published essentially transcripts of their conversation. Part of one of the many subjects of discussion in their interview is the power that the journalist holds or the profile writer holds to shape the perception of their subject. And I think it's telling that Lipsky explicitly relinquishes that power and his claim as a writer in the book, which came out a couple years ago with the title although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. And then that book has now been turned into this movie in which David Foster Wallace is played by Jason Siegel and David Lipsky by the delightful Jesse Eisenberg. It's always sad to talk about a Jesse Eisenberg movie without Dana here, so she and I can't have a Quell session. But let's just <laughs> let's just enter the Quell, the eisenberg Quell session into the record here. Uh, so I'm very curious to hear what you guys made of, of this film and this effort to portray on... David Foster Wallace's scrutinized and sometimes loathed and sometimes loved screens, a conversation about writing that is very hard to talk about. But first, before we do that, let's listen to a clip. Can you do me a favor? Yes. Can you tell me about that poster over there? Alanis? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm susceptible like everybody else. What? I mean, she's pretty, all right, but it is like she is pretty. the only thing in there. She's pretty in a very sloppy, very human way. Huh. You know, she's got this like squeaky, orgasmic quality to her voice. Yeah. Here's what it is. A lot of women in magazines are pretty in a way that is not erotic because they don't look like anybody that you know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like you can't imagine them putting a quarter in a parking meter or like eating a bologna sandwich, whereas... Alanis Morissette, I can and have imagined her like, just, like chowing down on a bologna sandwich. So we get a little sense of the the tenor of the conversation between these two. But I'm very curious, Seth, what did you think of the film? I really enjoyed it. I thought Jason Segel did a remarkable job of disappearing into that character. I thought Jesse Eisenberg brought his Jesse Eisenbergness with his nervous bursts of laughter and his, I think A.O. Scott said he's, his DNA is 25% weasel and that was, <laughs> once again, apparent. So I, I loved that. Um, I actually didn't feel this exactly was a movie about David Foster Wallace. I felt like David Foster Wallace was in some ways like a co-screenwriter on the movie because a lot of it was taken verbatim from those tapes. If you read the book, you'll see that a lot of the, the lines in the movie are taken straight out of the book. And so it's some great dialogue because it's in a sense written extemporaneously by David Foster Wallace. But for, for me, this movie was more about journalism. And as someone who's, you know, gone out to do profiles and stuck a recorder in someone's face, I very much related to Jesse Eisenberg's character in that way, the David Lipsky character. I also felt there was a little bit about male, sort of very male intellectual horn locking. You know, in the in the book, they actually play chess the first night they're hanging out together. And to me, that kind of symbolized the relationship in some ways that doesn't, I don't think that appears in the movie. But there was a lot of this thing where the David Lipsky character is 
placing himself in a hierarchy with the David Foster Wallace character, and he's sort of the Salieri to David Foster Wallace's Mozart. And to me, the movie was a little bit more about that. And it, as a movie about journalism, I thought it was actually an excellent movie. It was, it was a movie among the better movies I've seen in terms of capturing what it means, what it's like, what it feels like to be a journalist profiling someone. Jessica, what did you think? I think I committed uh, the cardinal sin of this movie watcher or the movie reviewer in that I sat through this movie just wishing it was something else, that instead of evaluating it on its own terms and asking, what is this movie trying to achieve? And is it achieving it? I, I just wanted it to be something less static and inert than it was. I agree with Seth that it has interesting things to say about journalism, and I agree that that given that it is a transcript of David Foster Wallace's actual extemporaneous words, that some of the dialogue is, is indeed excellent. But I just wanted it to be more than a transcript. It felt to me like a table read in search of a movie. And I think if there are a limit if there are a finite number of movies that are going to come out of David Foster Wallace's writing and life i don't want one of those slots to be taken up with you know just two guys kind of refracting and reflecting and absorbing their own anxieties about their own station in life um, i don't know it just it just left me flat you know you've hit on something so interesting in that answer Jessica which i hadn't totally thought about but the movie I think in some ways does itself a disservice by being so deferential to and respectful of David Foster Wallace's words and so conscientious that the only appropriate way to present him on film is to offer no acts of interpretation, to be incredibly respectful to the great mind and the great man's suspiciousness of framing, assertion, writerliness, any act of interpretation. And so what we get in effect is like scripture, right? It's the word of the man, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and the reverence of that. I mean, it's it's a fascinating document. And I think I haven't read the book, but from what I understand of it as a portrait to offer of David Foster Wallace after his death, I totally understand that choice. And it seems like it makes sense. But then to adopt that same constraint for something destined for the screen where you're where you're attempting a broader portrait of a man or a situation seemed I, I had not quite identified it until you put it that way, Jessica, but there was something about it that seemed limiting. And I agree with you, Seth, that this movie isn't really about David Foster Wallace and that Siegel's performance is great. But I also think at times you could hear Siegel, you know, he listened to the tapes. He did not just read the book, apparently, in accounts. He heard the subject saying those exact words in those intonations. And he mimics the voice, yeah. Um, and he really mimics the delivery and the voice. And, and that act of mimicry is fascinating and puts you in an interesting situation in a scene where you wouldn't be able to be otherwise apart from that act of skill. But still, the whole movie feels like it has constraint around its ambition in part in the face of someone who was so overwhelming a mind and genius as, as David Foster Wallace. Like, the movie is acting like David Lipsky, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the movie itself is kind of like, ah, you're the great man. I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to do too much. I'm like, I understand my place in the hierarchy here. And so it feels small to me. Well, yeah, and coming out of the movie, there's been a lot of pieces written, some debate about the legacy of David Foster Wallace and what he has become since his death, what he represents. He's now this like iconic figure who's being twisted. In the end. And there were a few things written by people who hadn't known him while he was alive who resent this movie. And they're like, you know, Jason Siegel's putting on the fucking bandana and, and it's really irritating to me. This doesn't capture who David Foster Wallace was. And, and so there's this wrangling over 
his his legacy, what he's going to mean to us. And you can see, you know, over time, if there are more David Foster Wallace movies, if he does become this thing like Jack Kerouac or like Ernest Hemingway, where he'll just be, he'll represent something. He'll, he'll, he'll be a metaphor or something rather. And it won't be the work anymore. It'll be this idea of who the man was. Yeah. And I think that that's inevitable. That's going to happen with any, you know, massively influential cultural figure, certainly any massively influential cultural figure who, who died in the way that, that he did. I think one of the concerns that people have about his legacy is this sort of like cuddlification of him that's happened, that you know he was always someone who was interested in cults of self-improvement and cults of self-help, but that he himself is going to become an icon of, of self-help or a failed self-help or a cautionary tale or something. Christian Lawrenson wrote in New York Magazine uh, very astutely about how this movie may or may not play into the kind of softening and codification of his image that's happened since his death, which is largely down to how incredibly popular his Kenyan College commencement address from 2005 became. At the time of that commencement address, I think a lot of the reception of it in terms of people who knew Wallace's work well, as opposed to people who were coming to him for the first time with that address, thought, oh, you know, this is just another example of his, of his capacity and his range. This, uh, this great novelist can also do the slightly treacly inspirational address. Isn't that cool? But if you look at that text really closely, it's really, really dark. And so I think if that text is the one by which we're remembering David Foster Wallace, it's sort of a double misinterpretation. Like, on the one level, he's being misinterpreted as some kind of inspirational figure who who has, you know, maxims and, and epigraphs to deliver. But then on a second level, the text itself was completely misinterpreted because it's so dark and it, it portrays a world that is so difficult to get through. And its advice for how, how to get through that world is, is so terrible. <laughs> well, he's, he's turning into this base. So the, the joke in This Is Water is that an older fish comes across two younger fish and says, you know, hey, boys, how's the water? And then swims away and the younger fish say, what's water. And the idea is that we forget this this moment that we are in at all times and we're not thinking about it. And David Foster Wallace talks about standing in line at the grocery line and like seeing our humanity and the person who is taking too long in the express lane and, and, uh, and stuff like that. And I do think part of why he's becoming this like self-help guru out of that is because so much of his work on a certain level really is about who we are moment to moment. So in in like Infinite Jest, it's it's escaping ourselves. It's like we can't be right. with ourselves in the moment. So we need to watch this addictive entertainment or take these drugs or play these sports in order to get out of who we are moment to moment. And then in, in The Pale King, his unfinished uh, work, it's about diving into that boredom. And so the IRS becomes a metaphor for boredom and how we're just going to be it and own the boredom. And so he really is about that, there was, and I, so there was a story in the all recently about how a lot of his library, not a lot, but in his library, there were a lot of self-help books, these sort mm-hmm. of like modeling mm-hmm. mainstream self-help books. And also written in one of his notebooks, he'd written Freak, colon, aware of his own pulse at all times. <laughs> and I think that was part of his problem. He just couldn't be with himself mm-hmm. moment to moment. And so he found these ways to escape it. And, you know, he's really self-deprecating. He had that Midwestern politeness and, and he would... You know, he was very like performatively fond for of regular people. I think in Bloomington, Indiana, he very much wanted his regular. You know, he just wanted that to be 
how he represented himself. And so we looked to him. He seemed to have it all figured out. Well, he was still alive for me. It was like he mm-hmm. seemed to have it all figured out. This nice guy who was polite, who was constantly thinking about how to be in the world and move through the world. And it turned out, in fact, his, his brain was a very dark place to be. The, the performance that you're talking about, the performance of the self that he was so anxious about is, is evident. It's more than evident in the movie. It kind of animates the movie. You know, in, in the end of the tour, he's very, very concerned with how he comes off. But he also seems to be, and this is one of the, the nuances of Siegel's performance, I think, he also seems to be performing that anxiety. Like, I am supposed to be anxious about how you're going to portray me. And I am supposed to be uncomfortable with all this attention that I am getting, even though I kind of want that attention. I published a book and I'm getting recognition for it. And aren't I hungry for that? Is it okay to be hungry for that? I don't know. All of that seems to be going on on multiple levels, and some of it is real, and some of it is performed. And just because some of it is performed doesn't mean that it's not authentic. And I sound like someone who's talking about one of his books. I mean, the the, the movie does... Uh, these things aren't subtext in the movie. They are, they are right on the surface uh, of the movie. And I think that's one of the ways that the, the movie does him right. I think, I think what you guys are capturing is, is one of the things that I liked about this movie, which is that it does feel, you know, this, and this is the opposite of what I said before, is that you do feel like you get a glimpse, right? You get a glimpse of this moment with this man. And you also get a portrait that feels apropos given where the culture is in terms of its relationship to David Foster Wallace right now because what the movie is about is the encounter with the great, right? It's like, what do we all do with the encounter with greatness that you certainly feel you've had when you finish reading an excellent piece or work by David Foster Wallace and that we all sort of feel now, like how do you make sense of where you sit next to this this thing? So maybe see the movie, probably <laughs> read the Lipsky book, definitely read Infinite Jest. That's your assignment. Just a little light reading, everyone. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining us for the segment. We're going to free you from the chair and and, uh, return Steve to the studio. Thanks, guys. It was great talking to you. Thank you. All right, Steve, welcome back to the studio. Thanks for letting us uh, dish about David Foster Wallace. I I imagine in the time it took us to complete that segment, you've now read the entirety of Infinite Jest. (laughs) So we'll have you on the next time we discuss him. Indeed. Indeed. I can't wait one day to have um, to have read DFW, but in the meantime, um, coming up next, the great air conditioning debate. Hi, I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Unorthodox, a new podcast from Tablet Magazine. Each week, Unorthodox dissects the news of the Jews with conviction and with wit. But you know, we're not just for Jews. We also invite in a guest non-Jew to ask us questions and even occasionally offer some constructive criticism of the chosen people. Immediately off the top of my head, you guys have way too many holidays. You really do need to edit the list down. You can listen to Unorthodox each week on iTunes.com slash Panoply or at TabletMag.com. All right, moving on. Here I was, Julia Turner, gamboling through life, believing that air conditioning was something upon which all of us could agree. Well, how wrong I was. A new study in the journal Nature Climate Change says that office buildings routinely set their thermostats based on an outdated formula whose key variable is the metabolic rates of men. All right, so we already have a gender controversy brewing. The authors go on to say that offices ought to, quote, reduce gender discriminating bias in thermal comfort and raise temperatures. Then picking up on the subject was the New York Times. They ran with it by publishing an op-ed with the slug line, why is America so over-air-conditioned? And it went on to argue, not unpredictably, 
that air conditioning is too ubiquitous in America for something so wasteful and uh, so contributive to global warming. Um, you can set aside gender discrimination. It ought to be curtailed anyway. To which, and here I continue again, to which Slate's own Dan Engber has replied, nonsense. He writes that anti-air conditioning bias is provincialism in the guise of eco-consciousness to inveigh against the air conditioner is to claim that someone else's discomfort isn't worth the same as yours. It pretends that feeling hot and feeling cold are in different moral categories, and no surprise, he goes on to argue that they're not. Um, AC meet PC meet backlash, Julia WTF. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that study could not have been more perfectly primed for an August debate. And, you know, there have been interesting debunkings of it that followed in places other than Slate, among them the fact that the metabolic rate of men in the 1950s when these formula were apparently set. The average size of men at that time is smaller than the average size of men or women today. So the notion that we live in some kind of sexist over air conditioned terrain seems perhaps not borne out by evidence. But Dan has been right on the air conditioning beat for us for several years now. And I've been very persuaded by his observation that there is a certain realm where air conditioning is ostentatiously derided as kind of crass, low, at odds with nature. You know, sometimes the finer, boutiquier venues are serving you their small batch ice cream and their cold brew coffee in just warm ass, <laughs> warm, warm ass rooms. And that there's an air of kind of smug superiority paired with the electronic savings that goes with that, that Dan has been lancing and poking holes at for years. Uh, and I think he's right. I mean, I, I have it has changed my thinking about air conditioning to that to have more disdain for air conditioning than you have for heating is something to think critically about and to not reflexively adopt. So I'm sort of team yay air conditioning, I guess, or team sure air conditioning. Don't do too much, you know. That's my position. I. I don't like the way this has become a gendered debate. Um, I don't think that that's quite fair. I would like to sidestep the gender battle. I do I do remember when I lived in Washington, D.C., and it would be like 98 degrees and 98% humidity in August. And I remember, you know, women would walk to the office in light clothing and then get into the office and have to wrap themselves in shawls because it's 62 degrees in the office and, and suddenly they're wearing like slankets. Whereas, but the exact opposite problem happened for the men where they would be very comfortable in their suits in the office. But the second they walked outside in their suit coats, they'd be pouring of sweat all over their bodies. So nobody was exactly happy. So I feel like we could find a common middle ground. I am actually, my solution is just to like completely deformalize the workplace and just let it be a little bit hotter and let men wear shorts and t-shirts. That is, I, This is like an agenda I've been subtly pushing for years. I feel like we shouldn't even have to iron our clothing. We should be comfortable with wrinkles. We should be wearing shorts and flip-flops at all times. Dana, cover your ears when I say that about the flip-flops. But I, I just think, why not let us just sort of wear shorts and t-shirts and let the workplace be a little bit hotter? That would save us on energy costs. I do note, Jonathan Chait made one point, the New York Magazine columnist Jonathan Chait made one point, which is that if you keep it cold, you can always put on more layers to become warmer. However, if the office gets too hot, there is like a lower bound at which it is no longer appropriate workplace attire when you remove layers. And that that bound is different for men than for women. He was pilloried on Twitter for being a sexist prick, but his point seems totally logical to me, which is that it's easier to put on a cardigan if you are a woman than it is to strip down and wear like a muscle tee if you are a man. And it's my solution is we just let men wear tank tops in the office and problem solved. <laughs> 
I have to say, I, I, I'm unpersuaded by the Dan Engber argument, completely unpersuaded. I mean, first of all, Dan never considers that it might be an act of complete aesthetic good faith for some establishments to not have air conditioning and some other establishments to have them. Instead, he has to read into it a whole social matrix of snobbery. It may have nothing to do with that. Some people, me included, really don't like heavily climate-controlled environments. I don't love airports, airplanes public buildings that are made icy in the middle of August. I like fresh air. I'm amazed at the inability to imagine a degree of innocence in that choice while imputing total innocence, conversely, to the choice of cranking up the air conditioning. I mean, there's a certain lack of context to the argument, right? I mean, heat allowed human beings to populate the globe, right? Heat, we have a primal relationship to. We were able to spread from the fertile crescents out to the Scandinavian hinters because of our strategic use of heat during the winter season. And thus we cultivated the earth. And in the last blink of an evolutionary eye, we've developed something to make us marginally more comfortable during the hot months of the year. Okay, there are parts of the world in which more people will survive and thrive if they, you know, in which air conditioning is kind of the cooling equivalent of heat is, you know, the mid-Atlantic in the United States of America, one of them. actually really don't think so. And second, the second lack of context is that, you know, there is a socially responsible totality of energy that human beings can use in order to preserve the planet they live on. If we had what that figure was in mind, and science can probably fix it pretty accurately, we could walk back from it to certain habits that are socially responsible, as opposed to making these to my mind, kind of bizarrely unanchored culture, pseudo-culture studies arguments about, you know, how it's a, a act of social distinctiveness or, or social snobbery to use or not use something like air conditioning. It's incredibly wasteful. Can we afford to use it? That's, you know, vis-a-vis the extinction of the planet. That's the question. Well, okay. I think you are fair to suggest that there can be entirely innocent motives in preferring fresh air. I like fresh air as well. I currently live in an apartment that I keep more air conditioned in the summer. I used to live in an apartment where it was easier to open the doors and windows and I had more fresh air and I liked that better. It's it's totally fair to consider it an unfreighted aesthetic choice. However, I don't think it's an accident that the kind of most elite, powerful, media-focused corners of our country are the corners from the Mid-Atlantic to the Northeast where air conditioning is not a necessary aspect of the summer in terms of the health and sanity of most people. D.C., maybe you're getting to the the outer bounds of that for, for those of us who've spent some summers in D.C. But, you know, if you're talking about the American Southwest, if you're talking about anywhere in the tropics, if you're talking about many, many parts of the developing world, air conditioning has real health impacts that it is much easier to write off if you are in the most powerful quadrant of the most powerful country in the world. Julia, when you say the Southwest, I think you get at the nub of what the real argument is, which is, you know, yes, it's true that there are parts of the world that suffer brutal heat waves and as a public health matter, using technology to cool them and prevent deaths is roughly the moral and technological equivalent of heating parts of the world that become bitterly cold in the winter. The most interesting point of the Dan Engber piece to me was simply the net-net calculation that if people move, let's say, to the American Southwest, the amount that you're going to save in fossil fuel burning in the winter is more than you're going to burn up air conditioning them in the summer. That seems to me a completely black and white 
counterintuitive but totally persuasive empirical argument. Why the compulsion to um, confuse that with a lot of reverse moralizing about why certain tiny sliver of culture snobs in Brooklyn prefer a fan with a strip of cloth blowing off the, you know, to air conditioning. It completely loses me when you go there. If, if I could switch the villain from cultural Brooklyn snobs to capitalism, I, I actually, I, I have a problem with all productivity advancement. I feel like capitalism requires constant uh, productivity advancement, and there are a lot of trade-offs come, that come with that. Like, you know, when, when we can fly around the world, we lose the joy of boats and trains. I've written about that extensively. But also, air conditioning. There used to be, it would get hot in the summer, and we'd get less work done. There'd be like a pleasant languor that would happen, and magazines <laughs> would put out their double issues and just take a week off. Off and everyone did less and it was delightful. And now, no, we crank the AC and we stay and it's just like any other part of the year and we get lots of work done. Trade-offs, modernity, boo. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you know, people make this argument about the American South, right? Which is that it was a different, it was a front porch culture. There was a distinctive languor to it because it got blisteringly hot starting in March and stayed that way till past Thanksgiving and um, you create a different culture when you turn it into an indoor climate-controlled one. I mean, whether that's a loss, I don't know. I, I hear you. I mean, I look, do I think it would be fun if Slate published on the academic schedule? I do. I've heard... Summer th- Fridays, Julia. I'm going to put in my vote now for Summer Fridays. <laughs> I've heard legend uh, in uh, in Slate lore that, that Slate originally had down weeks. Can you confirm or deny this? We definitely had down there weeks. Were, there were down weeks. Sometimes is- they coincided with major news events, and that's when we realized we couldn't have yeah, down so weeks. Yeah, so what I've heard is that it's the death of Princess Diana that that concluded the glorious late tradition of it, summer down weeks. It was but. Labor Day weekend, 1997. I remember it well. Or was it 1998? Well, I don't remember the date well, but I remember the weekend well. And we all came back from our lovely languorous vacations and said, hmm, we have no content on the side about Princess Di. We should probably do something. Yeah. So sadly, I think that has already been tried and found to be not totally commensurate with the goals of an internet news magazine. But I do, I will say, I want to pay homage to one particular experience that is generated by air conditioning, which is a great and glorious sensory experience that is probably bad for the planet and bad for our souls and bad for the workers and bad for everything else. But I enjoy it, which is the feeling of being in an over-air conditioned space where you are slowly, slowly, slowly getting colder and colder and colder and colder all day long, so imperceptibly that you can't quite feel it. And then you go and walk out for lunch or to meet someone for coffee or just to walk home at the end of the day. And New York City is hot and you can feel discrete waves of heat radiating off of every concrete surface, some coming up, some coming sideways, some baking down from the the skyscraper canyon sky. And you feel like a cool popsicle in the baked landscape and you slowly, slowly warm up to, to an outside temperature. I love that feeling. I also love that. I My neck gets so stiff all day in that air conditioning. I go outside and I feel the sun on me and I release. I was reading this trashy spy novel recently by the CIA analyst and he, he kind of, his tradecraft was down and he knew that the Russian... The Russians would torture people. They, the, the manner that was so simple, it's so deviously simple, they would soak you down with water and then just put you in front of an air conditioner for four hours. And when I thought about that, I was like, that is the ultimate torture. Like, that is the worst thing I could ever imagine. <laughs> All right, Steve, I will, not, I will not ask you to make some kind of ode to, to air conditioning. <laughs> I, but there, one is not forthcoming. <laughs> um, 
All right. Well, all of our hands will continue to battle it out for a control of the dial, the thermostat, um, no doubt. And we're curious to know how people feel about climate control in their own lives. So come to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us about your own battles internal and external over the indoor summer temp. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Julia. What do you have? I am going to endorse a podcast. In fact, the latest addition to the Slate podcast roster, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. It's a show that he'd been doing for a while, but that Slate picked up several months ago. And if you don't listen to it, I urge you to do so. Brian is a great interviewer and a very distinctive interviewer. He's calls the show The Moment because he's interested in particular moments where people figured out how to become great or became very good at doing the thing that they do or somehow found a way to connect their talents and drive with the world uh, in a manner that produced great results. And so his interviews are pointed and they're around a really fascinating subject. And I always enjoy listening to them. But this seemed like a good week to flag them for our listeners because he interviews David Lipsky and they have a very long conversation about this book, about the interview, about what it was like to put the book together in the wake of David Foster Wallace's death. Koppelman really needles Lipsky a bit about uh, encountering greatness and the effect of that conversation on on his own work. And Lipsky is delightful barbed, evasive, and charming about Koppelman's inquiries. So it's an interview about an interview about an interview, uh, and it's terrific. I highly recommend Brian Koppelman's The Moment podcast. Fantastic. Seth, what do you have? So I was going to endorse this PBS American Experience show, Blackout, which is about the 1977 blackout in New York City. It was a really good uh, one-hour documentary about uh, how this moment was sort of like the nadir of New York City. People started looting about five minutes after the light went out, and it's the summer of the Son of Sam, and the Bronx was burning, and you, you just realize like how gossamer the web of civilization can be and how it could just fall apart. And I love all sorts of 1970s New York City like bleakness, like photos of the graffiti trains and the burned-out cars on the West Side Highway. And... Martin Scorsese is doing a new uh, HBO show about 70s New York, and so is David Simon. However, as I looked this morning, I saw that it is no longer available online or on the PBS app, and I felt bad endorsing something that you can't actually see. So instead, I am going to endorse unfinished novels, such as the David Foster Wallace uh, unfinished novel Pale King or the F. Scott Fitzgerald unfinished novel Last Tycoon. You get to see the intention of the author and it teaches you comfort with irresolution, which I think is a valuable life skill. Um, And I also just saw there's an obituary for an uh, Australian woman named Marie Dobbs who did the continuation of an unfinished Jane Austen novel called Sanditon, which I had never heard of before. And I'm now going to run out and buy and read because as a Jane Austen completist, I need to read her unfinished novel, which completed by this nice lady and apparently very uh, proficiently completed by Marie Dobbs. She did a good job. It was 1975 that she did this. People felt she did an excellent job capturing Jane Austen's voice. All right. Well, um, very briefly, I'm going to endorse uh, something everyone's probably already heard of, but it's a British folk singer named uh, uh, Laura Marling, M-A-R-L-I-N-G. Comes across to me as sort of the thinking person's Adele, and I say this is someone who really likes Adele, but maybe if a little bit of a cross between Joni Mitchell and Adele. I mean, she's got a smoky voice that doesn't quite belt the way Adele's does, but has some of the same tonal qualities. And um, But her songwriting is, the architecture of its courting is kind of intricate the way Joni Mitchell's music is. I've just gotten to know it. I think I really love it, as always. Uh, write me and tell me I'm wrong or right. Um, thanks, Seth. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Julia. Thank you.
You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Seth Stevenson and Jessica Winter, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.